Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. This episode is brought to you by Paycor, the HR and payroll software made for leaders. It's never been harder to recruit, hire, and engage workers. That's why HR leaders and frontline managers depend on Paycor for all things people management, from onboarding and performance reviews to compensation and benefits. Learn more at paycor.com leaders. That's P-A-Y-C-O-R dot com slash leaders. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. We are just a few weeks into the new year, and we can't escape one maddeningly stubborn problem. The deadly toll of gun violence is again our top story tonight. Another mass shooting claiming lives in California. 11 people were killed in Monterey Park, California. Well, sadly, we are turning now to another shooting. This one at a nightclub. Word of another mass shooting in California, this one in Half Moon Bay. There have already been at least 39 mass shootings this year. That's according to the Gun Violence Archive. One of them has struck a particularly emotional nerve because of the circumstances. It happened in Monterey Park, California, a predominantly Asian-American suburb at a dance hall on the eve of Lunar New Year. Both the gunman and his victims were of Chinese descent, and we don't know his motives, but... The attack, nonetheless, sent shockwaves through Asian-American communities around the country where people just, frankly, have already been on edge for a few years. To learn more about Monterey Park and its history, we called up a scholar who grew up nearby. James Zarza Diaz is a professor of history at the University of San Francisco, and he's the author of the book Resisting Change in Suburbia, Asian Immigrants and Frontier Nostalgia in L.A. And James, thanks for making time for us. Thanks for having me. So you published an op-ed in the LA Times in response to the shooting in Monterey Park, and I really was moved by the way you opened the column. Um, You wrote, for thousands of fellow Asian Americans, Monterey Park is our home, even if we don't live there. Just to start us off, what, what do you mean by that? For me, you know, for a lot of Asian Americans, what happened in Monterey Park was really triggering and... Um, painful. And we're still obviously working through all of this and processing things. Um, but because, again, of the familiarity of the landscape, Monterey Park really embodies how a lot of Asian Americans live today um, with single family homes in suburbs. But there's a bit of a, you know, twist to that dimension in the sense that these strip malls are not necessarily mom and pop shops owned by white families or rows and rows of mainstream American chains. But in this case, places like Monterey Park are 
dim sum restaurants, boba shops <laughs> by the dozens, um, you know, Buddhist temples, along with Christian uh, churches. And that space of where the crime happened and, and the violence occurred is especially, you know, familiar to children of immigrants whose parents and elders go to places like dance halls and, and social gatherings like that. Let, let me ask you about that. Yeah. Because honestly, I have to say, like, I am one of the people who I learned about Monterey Park as um, this majority Asian American community through this horrible news. And I mm -hmm. detest that, that yeah. that's how I came to this, yeah. um, to this place. And, and one of the odd moments of, I don't know if the right, right word is joy, but that I get when I was reading about it is the is the vision of these dance halls. Mm -hmm. And can you say a, mm -hmm. a word or two just to like help us place this in joy? Like yeah. a, a, a word or two about the role these dance halls mm -hmm. play in a Lunar New Year? Absolutely. And I think and this is why, you know, what happened is so personal and resonates with a lot of Asian Americans is these dance halls are places of joy, as you said. They're they're places, you know, where revelers come together, right? And in this case, it was because it was Lunar New Year, it was especially, um, you know, boisterous and, and fun and presumably loud and exciting. Um, but even apart from the Lunar New Year weekend, these dance halls are spaces of gathering community. My own mother goes to places like this where she meets up with a bunch of her friends around her generation and a lot of them are retirees or people who, you know, are empty nesters and they just want to have time with their friends and their loved ones. And they go to these dance halls where all kinds of music are played. Sometimes these dance halls are more ethnic specific, so it caters to Chinese, it caters to a lot of Korean or Filipino um, immigrants or Filipino Americans or Asian Americans, broadly speaking, right? But oftentimes these spaces are the, the predominant community are uh, immigrants, right? And refugees and oftentimes multi-generational. So, so that's why, you know, when we think of these dance halls, they are places of joy. They are places of excitement and caring and, and love and all of these things. And, and I think that's why it especially hurts, right? Um, yeah. What we heard about Monterey Park. Yeah. Monterey Park has been called an ethnoburb. That's a term a lot of us are learning for the first time as a consequence of this awful news story. So what is an ethnoburb? Um, ethnoburb is basically a suburb that has a large concentration of a specific ethnic or racial group. And that can be measured in a variety of ways. Oftentimes it's just population size, right? Do you have a plurality, a majority of typically non-white groups? And so Monterey Park is in many ways the OG, the original ethnoburb, mm. because it had it reached an Asian majority by the early 1990s. And scholars, researchers, pundits, and even many residents themselves consider Monterey Park the original uh, ethnoburb, the first suburban Chinatown. And what happened in Monterey Park was a, a large concentration of particularly Chinese from Hong Kong and Taiwan settling in during the uh, late 70s, but really in the 1980s. And from there, you start to see this kind of mushrooming of, if you will, of Asian American communities surrounding Monterey Park. It'll extend mm. to Alhambra, it'll extend to San Gabriel, Rosemead Temple City on the west side of the San Gabriel Valley. And it would kind of it pretty much jump eastward to um, more outer ring suburbs of L.A. And 
And so as that migration began in the 70s and 80s into those ethnoburbs, who exactly are we talking about? I mean, was there a class question here amongst Asian Americans that might reflect the change in who immigrated into the U.S. before and after the 1965 Immigration Reform Act, which, you know, opened the door to more people from Asian countries? Mm. Well, in the 1980s, a lot of the Asian residents who moved into Monterey Park were uh, largely from Hong Kong and Taiwan. Many of them were middle class or affluent, and they landed what is often called white-collar jobs, right? In business, the medical field, engineering, and so forth. The class difference is stark compared to their pre-1965 counterparts, who many of them were oftentimes agricultural workers, uh, working in the service industry. And so Monterey Park quickly uh, garnered a reputation as, you know, the place you want to be if you are an Asian immigrant uh, of a certain class background with certain means. As the 1980s and 1990s carried on, uh, there were other suburbs surrounding Monterey Park that became more fashionable. These were, by the way, suburbs that for many years were majority white and many of them um, quite well-to-do, right? And seen as rich communities for even white Americans. So Mm -hmm. the incomes and, you know, if you will, privileges that came with higher incomes allowed them to enter spaces that were otherwise not open to them a couple decades prior. How were they received? With resistance, oftentimes. (laughs) Um, You know, some residents were open to having Asian immigrants uh, so long as they assimilated or attempted to assimilate or demonstrate gestures towards assimilation. So in other words, for example, not speaking Chinese in public. And the imposition is largely not necessarily just the cultural aspects, but also, again, because of the aesthetic. Uh, There were, again, now more Chinese supermarkets and Mm -hmm. businesses, Chinese signage that was um, not uh, understood by non-Chinese speakers. It became a battle zone and Temperatures eventually cooled down and residents uh, reached accord in some ways, but there were definitely a lot of moments of hostility and also a lot of moments of learning and uh, genuine interest in trying to understand each other. As I gather, the folks who were moving to the neighborhood were moving as home buyers. And I wonder mm-hmm. what what were they seeking in that regard? Like as home buyers moving to these places, what what is it they were looking for? You think it sounds very romanticized and cliche, but they're searching for the suburban American dream, and yeah. that suburban American dream includes a single family home, it includes a nice car, it includes a stable career, it includes family life, and all of the trappings of suburbia, and not just live there, but own there. And really, again, creating this idea that they have established themselves in a country that for a lot of people is the promised land. And let me ask you a tough question here, too, because Mm -hmm. when when we talk about the suburbs uh, and the movement to the suburbs, it's impossible for me not to think about white flight in general and Mm -hmm. all of its versions. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just wonder, like, how much of what you're describing was also white flight, (laughs) Um, amongst a certain class of Asian Americans from uh, the, the, the inner city communities that were largely Black, Mexican, and mm-hmm. lower-income Asian American um, 
I just, is that a fair comparison? Does that even apply here? Yeah, there, there are a couple of ways I want to respond to that. Um, the first thing is that, and this is going back to a question about class. And so the earlier pre-1965 generation oftentimes relied on the urban enclave of Chinatown or historic Filipino town or, you know, uh, other neighborhoods across the United States because they didn't have the income and means to, to suburbanize, right? That's also coupled with the fact that before the civil rights movement, they couldn't even fathom or think about or even dream about the possibility of moving right. to the suburbs, right? The other aspect that I want us to consider is that, yes, uh, white folks also left these suburbs with the increase of non-white residents, particularly immigrants, particularly Asians. For some, it was out of prejudice, uh, but for some, it was for them, at least in their eyes, they believed that the the amount of change that occurred and quite rapidly was too much for them to take. And it's not mm-hmm. necessarily to apologize or condone their behavior and their decisions to leave, but it's a way of trying to understand why they felt that that amount of change was too hard to wrap their heads around. And again, you know, one can easily infer from that 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 is racial, right? And in some cases, in many ways, yes, it was. But for some of them, it was more like, there's a type of suburban landscape I'm used to that I'm not feeling anymore, and I need to go somewhere else to find that, right? It's interesting because the whole idea of the suburbs, well, one of the ideas of suburbs is I'm not here to be challenged, Right, exactly. This is is comfortable, and now you're challenging me with this diversity stuff. Right, exactly. that's not what I signed up for. Right, and and a lot of it too, right? And the the range of reactions was anywhere between wanting to include Asian Americans in particular, or on the other extreme, vilifying them. But a lot of people were somewhere in the middle, right? Caught in this moral dilemma. And in the, in the context of the 80s and 90s, there was, again, for a lot of Americans, including white Americans, an, an openness or at least a willingness to, to see what, a, what a, this multiracial American could look like. And it's that moment in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s where a lot of these suburbs became battlegrounds around race and racial inclusion and change in diversity. I'm talking with historian James Zarsadiez about the story of Monterey Park, California. Coming up, what it means that this awful violence occurred in this place of all places. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. We, of course, have since the Monterey Park shooting had yet another mass shooting um, in Half Moon Bay in Northern California, uh, also involving a shooter of Chinese descent. Um, In this case, the victims are not also Asian American, but Mm -hmm. 
I just taken together um, these stories, I wonder about the emotional toll in general yeah. on the Asian American community, particularly the Chinese American community, given all that we've heard over the last few years about people who just feel newly uncertain and unsafe in mm-hmm. their communities. Absolutely. You know, these two tragedies, back to back, during and around Lunar New Year, it's it's tough to process. And a lot of folks, myself included, who identify as Asian American are still going through the motions. Uh, why this is has been disturbing, why what's occurred over the last few days has been disturbing is because for a lot of Asian Americans since 2020, news of violence towards the Asian American community has become commonplace. And that's not to say it it was never there prior to 2020, but the volume, the the frequency is why a lot of us feel constant grief, trauma, and fear. When we read those headlines and get the news alerts, we often assume that the perpetrator or perpetrators were doing this as an act of anti-Asian violence, right? In these two cases, we don't know the motives. That's still being investigated. Both uh, perpetrators are of Asian descent. And that's where the story gets a little tricky. I think that's partly why in these two examples, specifically with Monterey Park and and Half Moon Bay, Asian Americans especially are are like, what is happening here? Uh, and, And that's a broader conversation too to have around the debates around gun control, but also mental health. I can go down that road on and on and, and within the community with Asian Americans and how we address mental health. So that's why I think a lot of us are still trying to make sense of, you know, why these perpetrators did what they did, but also what does it mean when the perpetrator is, quote unquote, one of their own? There is a, a real conversation in many communities of color about how we handle our mental health and all of mm-hmm. the strain what do you think about the about the role of mental health in the community in general? Not necessarily yeah. applying it to these shootings, sure, but sure, just sure. how that how that has come up for you in the in the last couple of weeks. This has come up more anecdotally and more just kind of casually amongst family and friends who've been you know we've been talking about what's occurred, and for a lot of Asian Americans, particularly immigrants and refugees, not wanting to address, maybe not confronting, or uh, maybe minimizing trauma and grief. And yeah. anything yeah. in that universe of of feelings, mm-hmm. and and because of that onslaught, you know, there's there's questions of how do I manage this? Where do I go? Can I go somewhere? Should mm-hmm. I go somewhere? What do right. people think about seeking out mental health resources and support? Uh, I can go on and on. I know that a lot of communities of color struggle with that question as well. But the broader feeling is for a lot of Asian Americans. We want to find some joy. <laughs> we want to find some relief. Yeah, uh, and we yeah. also need to have a, a more frank discussion across racial lines about caring for our communities and thinking through about how we grapple with trauma, including ones that were racially motivated, but also ones that weren't, right? So mm. this is just a, a, a way to think through, I want us to kind of think through, you know, where do we go from here? For Asian Americans, we're sorting that out. And right now, it's just a matter of trying to process all of these uh, examples of terrible and tragic news 
um, during what is otherwise supposed to be a happy, joyous time. And I think that's especially why it's been painful and um, a grueling process. Indeed. James Zarsadias is a professor of history at the University of San Francisco and author of Resisting Change in Suburbia, Asian Immigrants and Frontier Nostalgia in L.A. Thank you so much for this, James. Thank you so much. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. You can follow us wherever you get your podcasts and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. Music and mixing by Jared Paul. Matthew Mirando is our live engineer. Reporting, producing, and editing by Karen Frillman, Vanessa Handy, Regina Dahir, Rahima Nasa, Kushant Navadar, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. And a special welcome to our brand new executive producer, Andre Robert Lee. I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for spending this time with us. Thank you.